I really enjoyed those two songs. I've never heard that second one. Isn't it crazy how, I mean, depending on where you go to church or what denomination you're a part of, the songs that you do or don't get exposed to, I've never heard that one, but that was, that was sticking, sticking to me over there. I want to hear it again. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to those of you who were here last night, and welcome to you who made it this evening. We are going to be in the book of Colossians tonight, so go ahead and open your Bibles if you've got them, or your phone, or whatever you're using these days to access the Word of God. Colossians, let me just give you a little bit of even why I want to, why I wanted to revisit Colossians myself. I wasn't just doing this to be here with you, but I've actually been thinking about these things a lot lately. Colossians is actually one of my favorite books of the Bible. It was the, uh, and I'd forgotten some of these things, it was the first class I ever took in seminary was uh, an extension class that I took when I was still trying to figure out if I even really wanted to go and take that dive into studying the Bible at a seminary, and we studied Colossians uh, in depth. And the verse that we're going to look at tonight actually wound up in our wedding program for when Amy and I got married 22 years ago. So there's some, some significance for me to, to coming back to Colossians. I haven't been in it in a while. But Colossians is really a pretty positive book. Paul is writing to these believers at Colossae, and he's, he's encouraged by what he's hearing about them. He's gotten word that they're growing in their love for one another. They're operating the way Jesus' followers should operate with each other. They're, uh, they're, they're producing fruit in their life, he said. There's reports of that. Y'all are growing. But he was concerned, and he recognizes that they're trying to be Christians in a very secular space. And similar to even what we talked about last night, not unlike the times that we live in today in America, a very anti-Christian or against faith type of culture, that's what they were up against. And so they were, they were being um, accused by the Jewish people and the religious leaders of being heretics, okay? I mean, that was going on like crazy in the first few decades as the Jesus message was starting to spread. These guys are heretics with what they're saying, so they felt pressure from them. Uh, and then they felt pressure from the Roman Empire who considered them uh, traitors because this Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, was a real threat to Caesar. And so they're getting pressure from both sides, both the religious and the secular. And what they're starting to do right out of the gate is it's Jesus plus a bunch of other stuff. In fact, look in, look in chapter 2, and we'll do this just to get a quick overview of what he was pressing back on them about. If you're in chapter 2, look at verse 8. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the element, elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So there's an awful lot in there, but you get the idea of human tradition, the elemental spirits of the world, all this non-Christian ideology, all these different ways to do life that are against the idea of Jesus being Lord. People are always trying to come up with different ways to make sense of life. And that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the elemental spirits of the world. Stay away from that. Look down at uh, verse 16. He said, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, all these different traditions. These are just a shadow of the things to come. But the substance actually belongs to Christ. Look down at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, 
Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like don't handle or don't taste or don't touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according, again, to human precepts and teachings? These all indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're really of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." You trying to work your way to being a good person is not going to work. And continuing to grab on to these traditions and these rules and these, these ideas about if we'll, well, if, we'll, if we'll do certain things in relationship to the moon and we kind of add that into Jesus, maybe that's going to help us to grow. Paul is saying, may it never be. In fact, the argument that he made back in the first chapter is that Jesus is Lord over all the universe. Maybe we should just look at that real quick to remind ourselves of what he says about Jesus. Look back in chapter 1. I'm going to do this just to set the stage for us to get into chapter 3, okay? In uh, 1 verse 15, Ooh, and there's a lot in here, but just get overwhelmed by who Jesus is and how he's trying to explain Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So he's saying, you guys, you're doing good. And forgive me, because I'm still dealing with altitude issues up here, okay? If I pass out, somebody bring me an oxygen uh, canister. Uh, (laughs) Takes me a couple days. I'm from Ohio. Yeah, we don't do altitude in Ohio. We just sweat. We just sweat. That's our problem in in June and July. Uh, He's saying, you guys are doing really well. You're doing really well. But let me remind you what you signed up for when you said yes to Jesus. He's God over everything. He's the one that created all things. He was there when everything was made. He'll be there at the end to rule over everything. He's above everything. And so all this stuff that you're trying to add into him and kind of make equal to him. Again, we'll do Jesus, but we'll also do some of this traditional stuff and some of these religious things and some of the stuff that the Romans want us to do. We'll throw that together. You need to stop doing that. That's actually a lie, and it's going to actually impair you from being able to grow into everything that God wants you to be. It's a distraction. It's a distortion, and it's going to mess with you in the long run. So cut it out. Knock it off. I was reading a, a commentary on Colossians. It was called Colossians Remixed, Subverting the Empire. It's a cool title, isn't it? Brian Walsh says this. He says, every empire tries to capture the imagination of those who live under its rule. Every empire tries to capture the imagination of those who live under its rule. 
So what he's saying is that every empire, and I want to come back to this idea of empire in a second. He's talking specifically with the Colossians. He's talking about the Roman Empire. He's also talking about the Jewish religious empire, okay, in the context of the Colossians. But an empire in capturing our imagination sets the limits for how you can think about life. We'll tell you what you should value. We'll tell you what's important. We'll tell you how to think about yourself in relationship to other people. We'll tell you how to become important or not be important. We will set the limits of your imagination. We're trying to capture how you think about life, and we're going to control that. That's what an empire tries to do. Now, why do they do that? Because an empire is trying to control its people. An empire tries to control its people. So just let's go here for just a second. Again, this is such a dangerous thing to do, but I live dangerously, especially when I'm in California with this kind of crowd. As you think about what a statement like that might mean for our time, our moment that we find ourselves living in, that every empire tries to capture the imagination of its, of its people, how would you describe what empire means to us today? Like what, what is the empire, apart from Christ, that's trying to capture our imagination? And I'm not looking for just one thing. There might be different answers. I'm just curious to hear as you think about this, because it's going to be important as we get into the text tonight, just to kind of locate ourselves in our current situation. How does that translate into where we're at today? What, what is the, what's the empire that's trying to capture our imagination? Commercialization. Yeah, let's do one at a time. So what did you say? Commercialization, maybe consumerism, because you said buy, right? So consuming, okay? So we, there's an empire that's based on the idea of products that we need to buy, okay? I like that one. What else? Somebody else, I heard other people chirping in. Political parties. Political parties, okay? Do you want to say, does, uh, let me do this, let me pass the mic. She said political parties. Somebody explain what that means. Curious to hear how you'd explain that political parties. Excellent. Different modes of thought, different ways of organizing people under them. Getting that's them take their ideas. Getting them to take their ideas. So that's really what politics is, isn't it? It's just, it's, again, we think in terms of parties. We think of two predominant parties in our system. And all those parties are trying to do is control the way we organize ourselves and how we think about ourselves. What else? Big government's trying to become our personal savior. Okay, you're saying big government's trying to become our personal savior. And I will just say this, that I know big government tends to be representative of one political party, but I think we could say that both political parties would enjoy being big government. Can I get away with saying that here? I don't know who I was in here. Both parties, although one party accuses the other of being about big government, both parties, at the end of the day, are all about big government because they want to control the way we organize ourselves. Anything else that you want to say when we think of empire? Talk about the American dream for a second. That's good. What's your name? Catherine. Catherine. Good, Catherine. 
the ability to self-actualize. So that's got something a little bit to do with consumerism. It's probably influenced a little bit by a political party, but it also stands alone, doesn't it? Just this quest to try to piece a life together. We're actually going to talk more about that tomorrow if you end up wanting to come back. What else? I saw one more hand. Go ahead. What do you got? Explain that. Education of the school system as an empire. Say a little bit louder. Say it so everybody can hear. Okay, good. If you want to make people do what you want, control the way they think. So get control of the education system. That's good. So th this is what I heard. And I, I have two big ones, and I think you just said them. And I think education is a part of that. I think self-actualization is a part of it. On my list, the dominant empires that I feel like I'm working against in my own life has something to do with consumerism, something to do with being um, constantly reformed by what I buy or don't buy. I'm being reformed by that. I'm being changed by that. I'm, I, I'm being challenged to become something different with the things that I buy or don't buy. And I like the political party thing. I mean, you can't even hardly avoid that, right? There's something going on. That's why our country is going crazy right now is because we have these really, really different views of how empire should be defined between those two competing. And we're all under here. I mean, some of you might be our work in Washington. I don't know. But, you know, the people are just, we're under here, and, and they're trying to capture our imagination, and some of us have gone along with one side's version, and some of us have gone along with another side's version, but at the end of the day, they're trying to capture our imagination and get us not, ultimately, to be aligned with the kingdom of God, by the way. Because see, this is what Paul, and then we're going to get into the text, this is what Paul's wanting to say to him. This is why that was such a clever title to the book. Like, you don't want to be synchronized with whatever the empire ideas are in your current cultural moment. You don't want to synchronize Jesus to that. You want to subvert the empire. You want to go against the grain of whatever it is that the empire is trying to get you to do that doesn't align with kingdom of God principles. And it takes some work to, to think about what, okay, what does that mean? I mean, I think one of the tasks that we all have, and again, I'll, I'll assume that we're in here as Christian people, as Christ followers, one of the tasks that we have is to try to discern the difference between what is coming at me from the empire, the secular empire, that does not align with godly principles and kingdom principles, and how do I separate myself from that? And where does it overlap? Because sometimes it does. Remember that at the end of the day, they're not trying to do it for kingdom reasons. It's not because they ultimately believe that Jesus is Lord, but it still sometimes overlaps in ways that we can say yes to. It's the work that we need to do. So now look at Colossians 3. Paul's saying you want to be subversive to the empire. Oh, and let me say this too again, because I don't know who I'm talking to. That doesn't mean I'm talking about... <laughs> It doesn't mean you go set the Capitol building on fire. <laughs> doesn't. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. It doesn't mean that we're bombing or we're trying to attack back at the empire, because I guess that could be a different seminar. It could be a different message, but that's not what I'm trying to do here with any of that. I'm talking about living a lifestyle 
that cuts against the grain of the lifestyle that the empire would like me to live so that I can fall in line. The, the Jesus lifestyle should be cutting underneath that in almost every way. Okay, that's what we're after. So look at chapter 3. <clears throat> and welcome to my wedding, because we had this read at our wedding 22 years ago. Paul says, listen, you guys, if you've been raised with Christ, which I'm assuming that you have been, is kind of what he's implied the whole way up to this point. If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay? There's a whole bunch in here, and we're going to take the next couple nights, and we're just going to pick this passage apart with each other. Okay? Tonight, I want to look at a subversive focus in Christ that Paul is uh, maybe admonishing us to. Let's just say he's encouraging us to have a subversive focus on Christ. He tells us to do, well, let me just say this first. Uh, gosh, I remember the first time, I'm going to take you back to my college days. So this is like late 1980s, okay? Some of you were like 20 years away from even being thought of, but a lot of others of us in here were, <laughs> were around in the late 1980s. And I remember going to college, and the first time, I used to have a lot more hair, and I remember the first time that I had to go to the grocery store and buy shampoo for myself. And I can remember standing in front of this wall, which I thought was going to be like a super easy thing to do. I'm just going to go get some shampoo, right? I ran out of shampoo, whatever I was given to go to school with, I don't have any more, and I'll go to the store and get some. And I remember standing in front of this wall, right? In the shampoo aisle, there was like a wall of shampoo options. And, and I had never even thought, again, again, you know, this is kind of the adult thing, right? When you start to become an adult, you start to realize, like, this is way more complicated than I realized. Like, do I want my hair to smell like peaches? Do I want it to smell like strawberries? Am I, like, what is the flavor of my hair I want to be? Which of these colors is going to bring out, you know, my natural highlights or whatever? I don't even know if I've got natural highlights, but some of these are promising that it could bring those out. Um, do I get the 97 cent bottle of, yeah, I thought so, right? The 97 cent bottle of shampoo that looks like finger paint, but it still is like it's 97 cents. Or do I get the $3 shampoo? Am I going to damage my hair if I don't get the more expensive one? Do I try to just get the one that's in the middle? And I can remember, I can remember being really overwhelmed. I know that sounds silly, but I can remember being really overwhelmed at the amount of choices that I had to make. I just wanted my hair to be clean. Like, that's all I really want. I kind of maybe just going to wind up using this bar of ivory soap. But I know what that does to the ring around the tub and what it does to the shower, so that can't be good for my hair, right? I mean, and I just remember feeling stressed in the aisle because of all the choices that I had to make. Now, this was in the 1980s. I've seen, and I'm going to pull this out because I just found another one recently. Like there is a psychological phenomenon called decision fatigue, okay? 
So the title of this article is Too Many Choices and Decision Fatigue. And, and what this article is all about, this is a very serious article, is just talking about the toll on our psyche because we live in a culture that offers so many choices. Okay? I mean, some of the brilliance, this is extra, some of the brilliance of Costco, part of the reason why people are so attracted to Costco, do you have Costco's out here? Okay, all right. Part of the reason. <laughs> oh, you work at Costco. I'm about to say something affirming. All right. I think this, uh, tell me if this is not true. Part of the brilliance of Costco is we've already made decisions for you. You got one or two options here. And they may or may not even be here when you come to get them. Sometimes they're not here. But you're only going to have a couple things to choose from when you get here. So if you like them, keep coming back. We'll give you a membership to get in. And there's something really relieving about that. Really, there is in the time that we live in. Because it's so overwhelming. I read an article a few years ago that talked about how the ability to pay attention was going to be a new form of capital for this younger generation, that, that people who are actually able to pay attention and focus on something will be in high demand in businesses where you actually have to pay attention to details, okay, because we're, we're being trained not to be able to pay attention anymore because we have so many choices, okay? Paul was saying 2,000 years ago, to do a couple of things. And he's, so he's saying it even more to us today because of where we happen to live at this point in time. He said, do two things. One, keep seeking things above where Christ is. Keep seeking things above where Christ is. A couple things going on here. Keep seeking. It's ongoing. It's constantly being repeated. Make it a regular repeating pattern that you would keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Now, why does he tell us to do this? Because he must know that our default pattern, our def our, the way that we're going to fall back into being normal is to not do that. We're just going to go back and be influenced by the empire. He said, no, don't do that. Keep seeking Jesus. Keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Keep coming back to that. Where is Christ? He's at the right hand of God the Father. He already told him in chapter 1. This is why he did this to him in chapter 1. Let me tell you about Jesus because I, I don't know what you know about him, but he's over everything. He's holding together your molecules right now so that you can stay alive. There's nothing in the universe that he does not have control of. Whether you recognize it or not, at some point in time, the entire universe will bow down to him. And he's going to remake everything. That's the story that we're trying to get caught up in. He said, what was the last thing that he said to, to his followers? Remember what he said at the end of Matthew? What was the part of the last little paragraph that he said to them? Stretching our Bible minds here on a Monday night. Somebody say it with confidence. Before that, what did he say? Why did he say to do that? What was the confidence? Man, he said, all power, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, guys. So you go and help people follow me. 
okay? That's where Jesus is, at the right hand of the Father, ruling the universe, even though it's kind of broken right now in the way it looks. I remember once my four-year-old Jack, he's actually here with us, he's 16 now, and he was in, uh, he's about to go to Sunday school. There was some kind of conflict that was going on with Mrs. Calhoun. And, uh, and I don't even remember what the issue is, but I just remember saying, Jack, Mrs. Calhoun's got it. She's in charge. Jack said, Jesus is in charge, Dad, <laughs> before he went into Sunday school. I was like, that's good, Jack. That's good. Remember that. Jesus is in charge. So what does it mean to keep seeking the things above where Christ is? What well, has something to do with studying Jesus himself, the inexhaustible nature of the person of Christ, and his kingdom rule? So what are the qualities, and again, I'm not asking you necessarily to answer this, but this is what we want to keep coming back to, the qualities that are reflective of the fact that Jesus is ruler over the universe, he has said, and this is what this whole thing is trying to do for us, definitely in the New Testament, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Remember how Jesus kept saying that? Hey, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Hey, hey, you've heard it said to do this. I'm telling you from now on, this is how it should be in your life, Right? It's the, it's the contrast in thinking about the difference between what does this world say about how to live life versus what does the kingdom of God say about how to live life. I made a list for myself because I feel like I need to think about this. The kingdom of this world, this empire, says me first. Me first. The kingdom of this world is all about acquiring power and using it to serve myself. The kingdom of this world is really about inequality, and unashamedly so, regardless of what it is that you read in the news. The kingdom of this world is really about inequality. It's about acquiring. It's about setting myself apart and above if I'm able to do that. The kingdom of this world says that justice equals revenge. It equals getting back at somebody. The kingdom of this world is about economics. It's about consuming and consuming product. Hugely about that and defining myself by that. Righteousness equals what I can get away with. Whoever has the most toys or the right toys wins in the end. How you look is more important than what you are. You can keep adding things to your own list. But you recognize all those things, right? That stuff's all like kingdom of the world. And, and I'm swimming in that every day. You're, you're swimming in that every day, those values. The kingdom of God, and you know this, but let's just throw some of the, these words out. The kingdom of God has to do with grace. Like you won't find the word grace anywhere else in the system of the world that we live in. No one else is going to talk about grace or being given something that you don't deserve a free gift of God, that's a kingdom idea. Truth, my goodness, Hume Lake just organized an entire week of high school camp trying to help our young people, 16, 17, 18, 19-year-olds, understand. I just heard Eric Thomas do this this morning. Just the idea that, the, that truth could actually be a concept. 
because that's been so watered down and erased. No, truth, actually, there is something called truth. There is something called objective reality. And all week long, he's going to be trying to unpack that kingdom concept. Just that idea. There is a biblical and kingdom idea of justice and righteousness, goodness, compassion. Humility is a kingdom idea. Faith, hope, having peace. Now, maybe we take those words for granted, but like those are, those are otherworldly, different kingdom concepts. And, and Paul said, keep seeking those things. Keep thinking about them. Keep trying to understand them. Keep studying them. Absorb them. We talked about this last night. Get them inside yourself until they become part of your muscle memory. Until they reflexively you understand what biblical righteousness is. What a biblical understanding of justice is. Shoot, I will say this. Again, maybe this gets me run out of here after tonight. Wouldn't it be a good idea to, to re-reflect on the idea of life? And what life is and what, what it means to be human. What does the Bible say about human beings? As we live now where this Roe versus Wade thing is going to just continue to unfold and it's going to become more and more contentious. And I just had a talk with Jack, my 16-year-old, who asked me, Dad, what's going on with this? Don't we need to revisit a real biblical understanding of what life is and what human life is? maybe we need to study what does God say about immigrants and the outsiders and how it is that we operate and interact with people that are considered immigrants. Maybe when it comes to race and ethnicity, is there a kingdom view of those concepts? Yeah, I think there is. Like we're living at a time where there are these hostilities that are taking place that the empire that we live under has got a view of all of those categories. And I think I desperately need to revisit for the sanity of my own mind, what does the kingdom of God say about those things? And not assume even that because I studied it at some point in seminary 25 years ago that I'm still fresh on that today or that I could explain it to my 16-year-old in a way that will arm him to be able to move into a world that's telling him things that are contrary to the kingdom of God. I want to be able to do that. So Paul, Paul gave me good reason to do it. He said, keep seeking those things. And then he goes one step further in, in verse 2. And he says, set your, your minds on those things that are above, not on things that are on earth. It seems like he's just repeating the same thing. Let me find something here. It seems like he's just repeating the same thing. There we go. But he's not. He's actually saying, I want you now to focus on those things. I want you actually to, to concentrate on them. I want you to laser in on them in such a way that you're, you're intentionally thinking about them regularly. Somebody once said, you must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. 
He's saying, I want you to keep consciously chewing on things because what you set your mind on is going to shape the daily direction of your life. So let's just do this for a second. I, I, we, Amy and I, my wife Amy and I moved out to this little sort of country-ish home. It was just outside of town, but it was on a well system, okay? I grew up in the city. Like, I don't know anything at all about wells. In fact, when we moved out there, I didn't even know we were going to have a well. That just tells you how prepared I was for that. Well, I'm going to try to tell this to you succinctly because it's about a nine-year story, okay? The short version goes like this. That well does not produce enough water. The well, I learned, does not, is supposed to be able to produce at least five gallons a minute. You're going to learn some things here about wells. So this will protect you, okay, when you go to move. When you go to move into a house someday that has a well. Do you have a well right now at your house? All right. If you buy a house... Check to make sure that the well produces at least five gallons a minute, okay? This well did less than a gallon a minute. Let me explain to you what that means. That means that randomly throughout your day, you will run out of water, sir. That is correct. And it will seem to happen anytime your in-laws are in town. Anytime there's guests over, I mean like clockwork, whenever we have people over, it ran out of water. But I mean every day, I wasn't sure what, how much water we were going to have at any point during the day. You just let that sink in, everybody. When it comes to doing dishes, brushing teeth, doing laundry, so you don't even realize how much water you're using across the day. Well, I started to become very aware of it, like insanely aware of it. <laughs> I became like a tyrant about how water was being used. Okay, and this is what we did. We went and got a tank and put it down in the basement so that we could see when the water came in. So that we, Because before, we had no idea how much we had at any point in time. Well, now the tank would fill and it would tell us. So some days we'd have about a foot of water. Some days it would fill all the way up. Okay, every day it was different. And throughout the day, whether or not it was going to fill back up was different. So I went and I started to study water in the community. Okay. Went to our, to our uh, to, I don't even know what it's called, I don't remember what it's called, but wherever they do the water stuff in the community, okay? And I got water logs, and I started to study, you know, who's got water in the land, and how do you, what does water do? And it's amazing, like it's this whole subculture. Does anybody study water in here? You do a little bit? Right on, dude. All right. I needed you about 12 years ago <laughs> to hang out with me. Had no idea. So I'm driving these people crazy at the county right? Trying to dig up everything that's happened. Found out they put in wells that shouldn't have been put. In fact, no one should have been able to build in my community. And I started to go try to find all those people. They had all died, okay? <laughs> Couldn't get to any of them. So now I've got this problem, and, and nobody wants to come try to build a well for us because everybody's afraid they're not going to be able to find water. It's going to cost at least $3,000 to even try, and if they don't find it, you just start over again. What I'm trying to say to you is every morning I woke up and thought about water, all throughout my day, I thought about water. At nighttime, I thought about water. Anytime I heard water trickling, who's using the water? Somebody leave the water on? Okay. That's enough for brushing your teeth. You've already been, right? I'm, I was focused on studying and understanding as best as you could humanly understand it, water. As I went about my day, and this is for real, for years, 
when I see Paul telling me to set my mind on things above, I think he's got something like that in mind in this respect. Like, what should this look like? It should look like grabbing a hold of a biblical kingdom theme, like grace. We said that, okay? Like, what would it look like to set your mind on studying grace and understanding everything that the Bible says about grace and reading books that people have written about grace? There's walls. You think there was a wall of shampoo. There are walls of great books that have been written on grace. There's podcasts about grace. There's sermon series that are out there on grace. I mean, we have access to to set our minds like no other culture has ever had opportunity to do on biblical ideas. So you're still going about your day. I still was going about my day as the water thing was going on, but I never stopped thinking about water. Paul is saying as you go about your day, whatever that includes, don't stop thinking about specific aspects of where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on those things. Don't let go of them. Because it'll change the way you interact with this empire's ideas about how you should live. Don't let go of it. So again, crazily diverse age range in here and probably crazily diverse Bible knowledge in here. And I I thought about this before coming in here. This is true for all of us. Nobody is too young to start asking and teach me, teach me about different Bible ideas. Nobody has become so educated. Jason, we never get to a point, right? I mean, you've been in church for decades, right? You never get to a point where we don't have to revisit some of the basic fundamentals over again just because of the way our mind works and because we find ourselves in a new cultural moment that needs us to revisit things we thought we knew. Or maybe now we're having to translate them to the next generation, and we got to figure out how to do that until it becomes so much a part of us that we don't have to think about it again. Like, that's a lifetime quest. I'll tell you this real quick. I, I took piano lessons late in life. Actually, when I went to seminary, I went to seminary back in the mid-90s. And one of my dreams was always to go back and start playing the piano again. I was a basketball player that had dominated my life. And now I'm in my late 20s and I'm going to seminary. And there's a music school that's right down the street. So I went over to this music school, and I asked the guy that ran it if he would become my music instructor, okay? He was retired, and he, at first he didn't want to do it, but I kind of talked him into it, and we had a great time with each other, okay? So he was having me study all the super complicated music. I'd play the piano when I was younger, and then I quit it. So I did have some piano already in me. He was giving me complicated stuff to study. And you guys, I went, and I was sing- single at the time, and I was actually living in a synagogue. That's a whole other story. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? I lived in a synagogue on the, on the north shore of Chicago uh, while I was going to seminary. And like we worked at the synagogue for these people, but they had a piano downstairs in the synagogue. And so I could play till two in the morning, back when I was still able to stay up till two in the morning and do things like that. And I would just keep playing the same measures over and over and over again until I got them, okay? You, you get it, music people get it. And just working it and working it and working it. And I remember going back one day. His name was Mortimer Chef. Mortimer Chef. Legendary piano guy. Uh, used to work for NBC Studios in New York City. Okay, a gazillion years ago. And, uh, and I remember one day going in there after I had studied and worked on this piece. And I played it for him. And I played it for him just about perfectly. 
And he sat back in his seat and he said, ah, he said, where is Edward in that? I was like, excuse me? He said, well, you played all the notes perfectly, but I want it to be part of you. Like, what, what, what will you bring to those notes and those measures? And, ah, and I think, ooh, let me take this into my Bible thinking, okay? Because I think what Paul is saying, I know this is what Paul is saying. It's definitely what Jesus wants. It's like study something, okay, so that you get down the basics and you can do the, the technical aspects of understanding a concept, but then chew on it and dwell on it and meditate on it and get it so that you don't even have to think about it anymore and it becomes part of you. It, it becomes part of the unique way that grace will come through Jason, that an understanding of justice and righteousness, it will come through Jason and look different. It will look slightly different than how it comes through me because he's dealing with different people in different situations in a different part of the country, right? Different family situation, different everything. And, and that's what Paul is saying. You guys stay focused on these things, get them, absorb them into your system, this kingdom, this subversive way of doing life so that it just comes out of you in the way that God has uniquely created you in your space, where you're at in this moment. I think that's really cool. So to land the plane, and we're just talking about a subversive focus on Jesus, that's all this is. To land the plane, what I'm saying to myself and Let's say this to, to ourselves in the midst of this summer. Like, what's maybe a Bible idea that it's time to go and learn more about? Or revisit, you know? Maybe it's something in culture or something that's come up in church or something you feel confused about. I don't know. Maybe it's a book you need to go back and revisit. Like, I'm really intrigued maybe to go back now and, like, really dig into Colossians again and just see what else is in there that I need to kind of re-chew up. At, at age 54 with four kids that's different than when I was 24 with no kids and I was staying up till two in the morning. Yes? Does that make sense? I think we'll stop with that.